the first thing I did was I went to my GP and I said I can't sleep and I wanted sleeping pills because I hoped they might help me and without even looking up my GP wrote me a prescription for tamazepam which is a benzodiazepine which is an addictive tranquilizer you know one thing they do they quite have quite strict guidelines about how many they'll give you but there are also guidelines from the national In institute of clinical excellence that they're not supposed to pre prescribe them for more than a month i was on them for years just repeat 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 prescription medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the u.s killing a quarter of a million americans annually 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. When journalist Miranda Levy couldn't sleep due to a relationship upheaval, she sought support from her doctor and fell down a multi-year rabbit hole into the wacky world of psychiatric medicine. Miranda lost herself in a healthcare system that has little understanding of the powerful psychiatric drugs they dispense like candy. The healthcare system also has little motivation to acknowledge the torturous effects that can come from withdrawal from these drugs. Miranda doesn't mince her words about her experiences with the medical system and the physical addiction it created, where it failed, where it helped, and where it abandoned her when she was at her most sick and desperate and in need of help. Miranda tells how a treatment center publicly humiliated her as part of their therapy and how she felt compelled to lie at the treatment center's 12-step program and say, my name is Miranda, and I'm an alcoholic. Even though alcohol was not the issue for Miranda, it was prescription medications that she was addicted to. Fortunately, Miranda took control of her health and destiny and started to slowly wean herself off the medications, an ongoing process that is taking years. But she's got her sharp mind back, she's back to work as a journalist, and she's writing a book about her safari into insomnia, mental illness, and the psychiatric world's version of big game hunters, big profit pharma. If you would like to support the podcast, 
You can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, all of the major podcast platforms. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Miranda Levy, and a word of caution as always that some folks may be triggered by Miranda's experiences with the healthcare system. Great. Thanks, Miranda. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Okay, I grew up in a place called Chigwell, Essex, which is a northeastern suburb of London. Um, I guess um, the equivalent is probably New Jersey outside New York. It has the same sort of jokes associated with it. Um, and my childhood was happy. My mother had um, intermittent mental health problems, but I went to a private school, which in, in the UK isn't as common as in, in America. So I had a good, very good education. My parents were together. I had a younger brother. I was happy. I did well at school, sporty. So on the whole, pretty good, I would say. And, and then after school, I, I'm assuming you went into university or college? I did. I did an undergraduate English literature degree um, at University College London, which is a good college. And then I did a journalism postgraduate. And then I started on my journalism career. Okay. And so today we're talking about how your personal life and health intersected with the medical system. Take us on that journey. Well, that's a big question. Uh, so, I mean, this specific issue, um, when I was in 2010, July 2010, I had some bad personal news. I found out that my husband wanted to end our marriage and it mm, did it come out of the blue not really but it was a shock and my response was to stop sleeping I, I had had some on and off issues with insomnia when i was younger but this was very sudden and very dramatic and i didn't sleep i went you know that i i went from four hours sleep to two hours sleep to not at all in the space of about three days Wow. So that's really going to affect uh, not only your ability to get stuff done, but the quality of work you can do. It was impossible. After two weeks, my, um, I was a magazine editor. I had a staff of 12. Um, I couldn't do my job. And my boss actually said, you know, you should go home now because <laughs> I wasn't functioning on any level. So how did you address that dysfunction? Well, the first thing I did was I went to my GP and I said, I can't sleep. And I wanted sleeping pills because I hoped they might help me. And without even looking up, my GP wrote me a prescription for Tamazepam, which is a benzodiazepine, which is an addictive tranquilizer. 
so that's what happens on the nhs it's, it's i think it's quite different from north america you know we have public health as, as you may know um so it's free for everybody um and all the the doctors are very overworked and they do the quickest thing to get you out of their office everyone i think everyone is allotted a seven minute appointment something like that uh, and so is that medication actually for sleeping yeah so i mean i was on a whole load of psychiatric medication over the following decade i call it my psychiatric safari um but it's it, yeah it's a sleeping pill okay so take us on that journey you start on that one and sounds like more get added as time goes by yeah it didn't work okay I, my insomnia was so bad and and to start with it definitely was anxiety there was a cause you know it was a trauma really um so it didn't work so i took two that didn't work so i just had to just try and power on and you know i did have children this is the last thing i want to say but i had two primary school about my family my children but i had two primary age children so i was a mom i had to do the school run i had to you know do all that because they're both under 10. um and i had a job i had you know i was a, a manager and i had to create a magazine um and i had a social life and i tried to just cling on to it and you know after two three weeks i kept going back to my gp and then i got um, a referral to a psychiatrist so I, I think it was probably a six week wait or something during which point i hadn't slept i was off off work and the psychiatrist put me on basically a different class of the benzodiazepines i was on a different drug within the same class um called clonazepam i think it's called clonopin in america and an antidepressant um and at that point that was all and it's I, I remember it didn't work still but what do i want to say here about that i was begging this man i was practically hugging him around the knees saying you have to help me i'm going mad and you know I, I haven't slept so anyway i have very strong thoughts about medications and and how they affected me um, and other people actually of those particular kinds of medications but what happened was when they didn't work i would just ring and he would just increase the dose over the phone until i was on a really quite a high dose of clonazepam in addition to the other medication or instead of yeah oh well no the it's it's similar to the tamazepam the first one so the first one was stopped and i was put on one that's sort of throughout the day it's a tranquilizer rather than a sleeping pill plus an antidepressant called trazodone. I don't know what that's called in America. Okay, so now you're on multiple medications and how's your quality of life? I don't have one. I basically, you know, the clinical word for it in Britain is I went bonkers. <laughs> I went insane. I couldn't, I couldn't work. Um, I think I was initially given three months off work. And then I just stayed in bed and I was trying to read. I couldn't concentrate on the words. It was hell. It was torture. And it went on for years. So it occurs to me that the cause of your troubles was a social relationship. But I'm not hearing any of the medical supports addressing that um to start with no because you d it doesn't exist on the national health service 
you, you don't have it. I mean, you know, on the National Health Service, if you are schizophrenic or psychotic, having delusions or you're dangerous, they'll put you in a, a psychiatric hospital. It's very, they call it being sectioned. It's very, very difficult. I was nowhere near needing that. Um, in the end, I did hire a private therapist, but it's not the same as in the States or Canada, or maybe, I don't know what Canada's like, but it's not normal to have a therapist in this country. It's seen as a very kind of privileged North London, arty, self-indulgent thing to do. And it's expensive. You know, it's like 80, 100 pounds an hour or something. Um, it's just, and I, and I just thought, okay, you know, I have to get over this shot. And also I had, I had lots of practical issues like, you know, how do I carry on with my life? Do I going to have to be a single mum? You know, how is this going to all work out? You know, having to share a, fat, a, a home still because my, my ex wouldn't move out and he wanted me to move out. Um, so it was a stalemate. So that wasn't moving on. I went to see a, a divorce lawyer and then I just didn't feel strong enough to proceed with that because I, I couldn't think straight. You know, I don't know if you've ever been without sleep, but it's it's not good for the the uh you know getting things done area of your life and it well you know i was i was in the state for years and um you know I, I started taking more of the tablets because they're addictive you become dependent on them you need more of them to do the same thing so then you run out early so then you're in a mess because you can't you know you only get one pack a week you know one thing they do they quite have quite strict guidelines about how many they'll give you but there are also guidelines from the national in, um institute of clinical excellence that they're not supposed to pre prescribe them for more than a month i was on them for years just repeat 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 prescription and so how aware were you of these guidelines about the addictive quality of these meds I knew I was a journalist, so and my and my mother had been on them earlier in in her life, so I knew about them, but um, I didn't care because my, even if they didn't make me sleep, they kind of made everything a bit fuzzy around the edges. You know, so from that point of view, I didn't care. I I, I knew sort of the the. Um, what's the word? The reasonable, detached side of me knew this was bad. But then the side of me was like, I don't care. I'm in, I'm in such a mess. So, but then a point came where I did decide to try and do something about it after about five years, four years, four and a half years. Okay. So what was the catalyst to that change? I just knew I was, there was one, I just remember on Monday mornings, I would be standing outside the chemist with my prescription, jumping from one foot to the other, desperate for the pharmacist not to open the door late because I was feeling withdrawal symptoms. Wow. So I was starting to feel really, really unwell. So, so how did you address that? What was your strategy? Okay. So I went to the drug and alcohol service on the local NHS hospital, which was basically full of heroin addicts and alcoholics. And I've written quite a lot about this, the kind of hierarchy if you like of addiction and i don't think that there should be one but it wasn't the right place i'm not saying i'm better but they didn't understand 
iatrogenic addiction. They didn't understand drugs given by doctors. And there's a kind of a quite a difficult, um, different. Also, you can't just stop. You know, you have to wean off slowly. And this was this became a very large part of my um, journey, as you would say, in America um and Canada I keep saying America sorry um and in my book I, as I think I told you on the phone I'm writing a book about this subject and I go into quite a lot of depth about what what happened to me trying to come off these pills uh so how helpful was your GP or the medical system in general well, about weaning? the irony the irony <laughs> was that a, a consultant psychiatrist put me on these pills um two floors below his office was the addiction services so he so two floors you, you see what i'm getting one um, stop I, service right my gp said i'm really sorry we have to follow what the consultant says the consultant being the psychiatrist so i said i'm worried about these pills i want to get off them and they said well we have to follow the lead of your psychiatrist so it was all a bit stuck really um, so it sounds like the psychiatrist wasn't wanting to lower the dose? We were trying to find, well, I couldn't because I, I know, I, I, I think we did try a couple of other things like melatonin maybe, which you can't buy here over the counter like you can in North America. It's, it's seen as problematic. So we tried that. I think we tried several types of antidepressants. I think we may have even tried antipsychotic drugs, even that early, which we did try. I did was put on again later when things even ridiculously worse. So in the end, I thought I've had enough. I'm taking myself off to private rehab. And that's what I did. Oh, so tell me about that experience. Oh my God. They had no idea. I, on the phone, I researched a few. I said, you know, most of them were, you know, for alcohol and cocaine and, you know, um, street recreational drug addictions. So I said, do you know how to deal with prescription drugs? They said, yes. And in fact, most of them said, no, I'm really sorry. We don't have the staff. It's a different, it's a different, but one or two said, yeah, we, we've got lots of experience. So I chose one and I went there. And when I turned up, they actually said to me, oh, I think we've only ever had one like you before. And by then I was just, I was like, well, I'm here now. And um, so I saw a GP and we, we worked out what's called a tapering program where you come off. And then they said to me, oh, okay, and tomorrow, you know, you have to start going to the AA meetings. And I said, well, I'm not an alcoholic. What do you mean? And they said, well, we, we do everything with the 12 step program here. So I was like, oh, really? Oh, all right then. <laughs> so I was flung into a 12 step pro rehab program okay <laughs> how did that turn out not well <laughs> i failed um they did the main thing was, was they didn't understand the withdrawals and prescription drugs so they tried to take me off them way too quick i mean they didn't stop cold turkey they knew that would be dangerous and that would have been dangerous i could have had a seat like seizures and been very ill if not died so they started withdrawing me very quickly well too quickly i as as time went on i became worse my health became worse 
because of terrible withdrawal symptoms and I'd sit there watching you know alcoholics and heroin addicts you know maybe not the alcoholics you know swooshing and out in five days and I was getting worse I didn't really I mean the 12 step program there's a lot of interesting things to recommend it you know there was some common sense stuff there but it didn't speak to me I didn't understand a lot of it I found you know it just I felt that the problems behind my addiction were different to some of the other people there. I was put on them by my doctor. It wasn't a choice. You say your symptoms worsened as you tapered off too quickly. What symptoms were you experiencing? Blimey, I couldn't sit still. It was like, I mean, you talk about the word anxiety. I couldn't be in a room. I'd like have to walk up and down the stairs. I still wasn't sleeping at all. So I was out of my mind. I, um, what else? That was the main thing. It was just anxiety, the point of not being able to sit on a chair for 20 minutes. No concentration. You know, I was told, because you had to do chores, you had to do cleaning and um, cooking and, you know, and I couldn't do it because I couldn't concentrate. So I was told, they, they, they use this kind of tough love approach. I was very withdrawn. I didn't talk to anyone. So they tried to humiliate me. They made me stand on a chair and sing the national anthem. You know, yeah, yeah I won't name, well, I won't name the uh, rehab clinic. Yeah, and they call that support. And then I remember one time feeling suicidal because I just couldn't cope. And they said, well, I'm sorry, you have to leave because we can't handle that and in the end I felt like I was the bad girl and you know towards the end I was going to NA meet um alcoholic meetings and say my name's Miranda Lee Miranda I'm an alcoholic because I just felt I just had to join in uh because I wasn't allowed to miss the meetings there were narcotics anonymous and you know like I said the experience made me a lot more open-minded and a lot less judgmental and I liked an awful lot of the people but I just felt it was not right for what I was going through. Well that's pretty amazing you can find the positives in that experience and take those away. That, that's uh, I think black humor helps. Yeah because that sounds like more iotrogenic harm. Oh it was it was all yes there was a yes so then, to continue the car crash tale, uh, <laughs> we agreed that I should leave. You know, I sort of got called up to the headmaster's office. I felt like a naughty child. I was paying for this, like a lot, quite a lot of money. And so I said, I decided, I asked them to drop me off at the local, at my local National Health Service Hospital, psychiatric well, the accident and emergency. And I basically begged to be let into a psychiatric unit and a National Health Service psychiatric unit is not a pretty place. And I was there for five days and I got thrown out of there as well for not being ill enough. Actually, that was a blessing. And I was back at home. I was back at home where I, where I, where I had been six weeks earlier and several thousand pounds poorer and feeling worse. Wow. Yeah. And so how did you manage to find the right amount of tapering? I didn't. So when I was in, I was in on 50 milligrams of diazepam by the time I went into uh, the clinic, which is a lot. Because um, we, we sort of switched over the addiction counselor, um, 
consultant I saw so it was easier to come off so I was on diazepam at that point so by the time I left the clinic I was on 20 which which was a big drop and then I just remember over it came up to Christmas and I just thought sod it I'm just going to come off this myself so I came off it myself in about three weeks in front of have you heard of the band One Direction they're a British sort of teeny bopper what kind of band I remember I had that my family were away and I just came off the night before just stopped and I just went through the most terrible acute withdrawals in front of this kids pop movie and I was like on the floor like moaning and rolling I mean I'm smiling now but it was not fun at all and then it all goes a bit blurry after that for a while to be honest and then a, a year or so after that, I moved back to live with my father because he retired. And we all decided it was a good idea for me to leave the, the family home. So I moved back here. And so during all of these years, did you manage to get back to work, to your career? Um, I, in 2012, which was about two years after it all started, I tried to force myself to go back I had a magazine that were really loyal to me that I'd worked for in the past and she said come and do there's a maternity cover come and do it and I said I can't get in in the mornings I can't get on the train I can't it takes me two hours to leave the house she said fine start at midday you know really kind magazine but I couldn't do it for more than about a week I just couldn't I couldn't concentrate I was I was a mess so I did try to go back to work and I couldn't do it. I couldn't read. I couldn't use a computer. I, I, I was like endlessly and obsessively Googling medical conditions. That was another thing. It sort of transferred into a weird kind of health anxiety, obsession, sort of compulsion thing. I'd never had any of these problems before. I'm now convinced that a lot of my problems were A, the drugs and B, more actually the withdrawals from them because they really do mess you up in a way that I don't think is still written about enough. I totally concur. Yeah, I, it's been a learning curve for me too, hearing from clients about the withdrawal, the challenges, how long it can take, how torturous it can be. Yeah, now I'm on another drug, which, um, you know, I'm jumping ahead a bit now. Uh, I don't know if you want to fill in the gaps first. Uh, yeah, so because I, I sort of took us back a wee bit. So you were saying that you uh, moved in with your retired father. And moved in with like my dad. Turn around then? Uh, eventually, not immediately. I went to see another psychiatrist around here. Bear in mind, it's the National Health Service, so it's all different health authorities. I tried private health for a bit, actually. I went into an expensive private clinic and they, I think they thought I was psychotic and they filled me up with antipsychotics, which was not appropriate. And I put on about half my body weight again. And I saw a doctor here and I had various other cocktails and combinations. They wanted to put me on lithium at one point, which is a drug, for an old fashioned bipolar disorder drug. And I put my foot down and I said, no. And I think that was at one point I suddenly started to feel myself coming back a bit because I had an opinion and I wasn't going to just do whatever they said. So a little <laughs> <a> turning point. <laughs> I don't know if you know the film, A Great, The Greatest Showman, if you've seen it. From like the 50s? No, no, it's a new film. Oh. It, um, it's, a, it's a very sort of, sorry, forgive me, American 
woke, right-on, inclusive, slightly sentimental saccharine film. And my kids came over and I was watching it and I was like, I hate this. It's terrible. And then I realised that my kind of, my meanness, my taste was coming back. Um, and then also, I know, sorry, anyone who's a fan of this film, it's very popular. And then the second thing that happened was a friend of my brother, who's a doctor, he's an A&E doctor in Australia. He'd written a book, he'd written a novel, and he wanted my um, opinion of the first three chapters. And I said, OK, I'll have a look. And it was so terrible. And I was like, but, but what was good is I was able to actually see why it was bad and make constructive criticisms. And I realized that my brain power was coming back and a number of things happened. I, I'd been completely agoraphobic. I didn't see any of my friends for years. And there was one cousin who insisted on coming to see me and making me go out for walks. That helped. I started watching the news again. And gradually, somehow, these little things, I started sleeping to start with, I would say just a few minutes a night, literally. And then that maybe grew into an hour or two hours. So it was all working together. And I still don't quite know what happened. But I started to get back, myself back. So it sounds like the amount of time away from some of those meds may have been part of it. You had healed some? Is that healing? Certainly the benzodiazepines. The, the PAMs, the, the Valium and the clonazepam. Um, but I was put on something else called pregabalin, which I think is that um, article you may have seen. That I, I can't remember how you found me, actually. But um, I was put on a new drug that's an anti-seizure medication that they also give for pain. It's called Lyrica in America. That does a similar thing to the benzodiazepines but they think it doesn't have withdrawal effects or side effects but it does so i'm i'm still on that but i a year ago when i was discharged by a psychiatrist i started reducing so i am still on some medications but nothing like how i was and it sounds like you're in taper mode yeah i've been tapering since on, in June 2019, I was on 250 milligrams a day. I'm now, I'm now, how many months later? 50 months later on four, uh, 40. That's how slowly I'm doing it. Safely. Because if I get it, by a few hours, I get hot, I get sweaty, I feel sick, I have a headache. It really has withdrawal symptoms, but I have to fight my way through them and do it slowly and my very I've got a great GP around here who has switched me to the liquid form so I can manage it myself rather than jumping down on capsules. Wow that's very helpful. Yeah I, that's advice I would that's advice I, I mean I don't like giving advice I'm not medically qualified and it's different for everybody but I would say if you can find a liquid version of the pill you're on and manage it yourself so it sort of sounds like when your brain and your personality started to come back online there was also an awareness of the impact of these medications and the larger medical system problem around that yeah hugely and so you've written some articles around that and you yeah so you're writing a book. I've 
yeah, I'm, yeah. So I'm a journalist. I was mainly in women's magazines, actually. Um, Cosmopolitan, Glamour. They're quite big brands that you have in the States. Um, then I worked on newspapers for a bit. Then I, man I edited a, wi uh, a mother magazine called Mother and Baby. So what happened was when I started to feel better, I started working again in May last year. Um, so I wrote a couple of features about myself. I wrote about my insomnia. That was the very first one I did for a big national paper called the Daily Mail. And that led on to, um, I wrote a couple of other pieces. So some stuff came out in the news about certain prescription drugs. The government realised there were problems with them, opioids as well. So there were five classes of drugs, opioids, gabapentinoids, which is pregabalin and something called gabapentin, antidepressants, Z drugs. I think you have Ambien, Zolpidem, Zalpalon, and the benzodiazepines. So I wrote a couple of features then about my problems with addiction. I mean, some people only want to call it dependency. There's a bit of politics going on about what word you use. I'm not precious. I was addicted. I understand why people don't like to say it, but, and then, but also as well as that, I, I do a lot of health journalism that's unrelated, you know, not mental health, but physical health. I, I interview, I do profiles of people. So I do lots of different types of journalism, but at one point, then I, then I got a column with a national newspaper called the Daily Telegraph called the Insomnia Diaries online it wasn't it and then that um finished for one reason or another but i thought there's a book in this and i uh, yeah cut a long story short golden agent found a publisher and i'm writing that now coming out june the third next year wow so you're back into your career and you're writing a book mm -hmm. i have a yeah. new relationship i'm fixing things with my children Oh, so you're on the recovery healing trajectory. I am, and it's I'm, it's actually better than that. I have much more of an appreciation for life. I don't take things very seriously. I mean, obviously, when they need taking seriously, I do. I'm very grateful for small things that I took for granted before. So, yeah, I do sort of sense there might be disaster around every corner. So I, it's almost a little bit of like making hay. You know, this is today and it's great. But it, I, it doesn't spoil my day, if you see what I mean. Absolutely. Yeah. It sounds like post-traumatic growth. Yeah, I've heard that phrase before. Resilience. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So if folks wanted to connect with you, find you online on social media, how would they do that? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter, at Miranda Levy Copy, and Levy is L-E-V-Y. And where else? I have a website, mirandalevy.co.uk. Okay, and I'll include those links in the show notes as well. That'd be nice, thank you. I also have a blog, but I don't fill it very, I don't do it very often. It's called talesofaninsomniac.com. I'll include that link too. Mm. Well, Miranda, thank you for sharing your health journey. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, no doubt there'll be other folks out there who are listening who are going to be going, okay, maybe that's what's going on with my body. 
Well, I hope so. But one thing I would say is don't stop taking anything suddenly. Take medical advice. You know, don't think, oh my God, I'm on Lyrica, I have to stop, because that's really dangerous. Um, always get medical advice. And I would also say when you think there is no hope, there might be, because I thought that was it. I'd had my life and I just was just existing now. And it, I mean, there's a poem I love, if I could just tell you four lines from it. Um, it's Rilke, I don't know if you've heard of him, he's an Austrian poet. I've got it on my, my, above my desk here. It's, it's, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going, no feeling is final. Those are words of wisdom. Mm. And if you want to see it anywhere, it's at the end of that film, Jojo Rabbit, if you've heard of that film. That's I, where I saw it. I just had a good friend tell me I have to watch that movie. It, it divides opinions in the Jewish community, of which I'm part of, but it's, it's, it's worth a watch, I would say. Well, now I, I'm definitely going to have to watch it. <laughs> Thank you, Miranda. Enjoy the rest of your day. I will. Okay. Bye. Well, a big thanks to Miranda for sharing her experiences with the psychiatric end of the medical system. It is a word of warning for all to be wary of what doctors are prescribing to you. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. If you would like to support the podcast, you can subscribe on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, all of the major podcast platforms. You can also become a monthly patron of the podcast. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.